Section 61 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Carpenter. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume volume one d section sixty one appendix to the reign of james i part one it may not be improper at this period to make a pause and to take a survey of the state of the kingdom with regard to government manners finances arms trade learning where a just notion is not formed of these particulars history can be little instructive and often will not be intelligible we may safely pronounce that the english government at the accession of the scottish line was much more arbitrary than it is at present the prerogative less limited the liberties of the subject less accurately defined and secured without mentioning other particulars the courts alone of high commission and star chamber were sufficient to lay the whole kingdom at the mercy of the prince the court of high commission had been erected by elizabeth in consequence of an act of parliament passed in the beginning of her reign by this act it was thought proper during the great revolution of religion to arm the sovereign with full powers in order to discourage and suppress opposition all appeals from the inferior ecclesiastical courts were carried before the high commission and of consequence the whole life and doctrine of the clergy lay directly under its inspection every breach of the act of uniformity every refusal of the ceremonies was cognizable in this court and during the reign of elizabeth had been punished by deprivation by fine confiscation and imprisonment james contented himself with the gentler penalty of deprivation nor was that punishment inflicted with rigor on every offender archbishop spotswood tells us that fee was informed by bancroft the primate several years after the king's accession that not above forty-five clergymen had then been deprived all the catholics too were liable to be punished by this court if they exercised any act of their religion or sent abroad their children or other relatives to receive that education which they could not procure them in their own country popish priests were thrown into prison and might be delivered over to the law which punished them with death though that severity had been sparingly exercised by elizabeth and never almost by james in a word that liberty of conscience which we so highly and so justly value at present was totally suppressed and no exercise of any religion but the established was permitted throughout the kingdom any word or writing which tended towards heresy or schism was punishable by the high commissioners or any three of them they alone were judges what expression had that tendency they proceeded not by information but upon rumour suspicion or according to their discretion they administered an oath by which the party cited before them was bound to answer any question which should be propounded to him whoever refused this oath though he pleaded ever so justly 
that he might thereby be brought to accuse himself or his dearest friend was punishable by imprisonment and in short an inquisitional tribunal with all its terrors and iniquities was erected in the kingdom full discretionary powers were bestowed with regard to the inquiry trial sentence and penalty inflicted excepting only that corporal punishments were restrained by that patent of the prince which erected the court not by the act of parliament which empowered him by reason of the uncertain limits which separate ecclesiastical from civil causes all accusations of adultery and incest were tried by the court of high commission and every complaint of wives against their husbands was there examined and discussed on like pretenses every cause which regarded conscience that is every cause could have been brought under their jurisdiction but there was a sufficient reason why the king would not be solicitous to stretch the jurisdiction of this court the star chamber possessed the same authority in civil matters and in methods of proceeding were equally arbitrary and unlimited the origin of this court was derived from the most remote antiquity though it is pretended that its powers had first been carried to the greatest height by henry the seventh in all times however it is confessed it enjoyed authority and at no time was its authority circumscribed or method of proceeding directed by any law or statute we have already or shall have sufficient occasion during the course of this history to mention the dispensing power the power of imprisonment of exacting loans and benevolences of pressing and quartering soldiers of altering the customs of erecting monopolies these branches of power if not directly opposite to the principles of all free government must at least be acknowledged dangerous to freedom in a monarchical constitution where an eternal jealousy must be preserved against the sovereign and no discretionary powers must ever be entrusted to him by which the property or personal liberty of any subject can be affected the kings of england however had almost constantly exercised these powers and if on any occasion the prince had been obliged to submit to laws enacted against them he had ever in practice eluded these laws and returned to the same arbitrary administration during almost three centuries before the accession of james the regal authority in these particulars had never once been called in question we may also observe that the principles in general which prevailed during that age were so favorable to the monarchy that they bestowed on it an authority almost absolute and unlimited sacred and indefeasible the meetings of parliament were so precarious their sessions so short compared to the vacations that when men's eyes were turned upwards in search of sovereign power the prince alone was apt to strike them as the only permanent magistrate invested with the whole majesty and authority of the state the great complacence too of parliaments during so long a period had extremely degraded and obscured those assemblies and as all instances of opposition to prerogative must have been drawn from a remote age they were unknown to a great many and had the less authority even with those men who were acquainted with them 
these examples besides of liberty had commonly in ancient times been accompanied with such circumstances of violence convulsion civil war and disorder that they presented but a disagreeable idea to the inquisitive part of the people and afforded small inducement to renew such dismal scenes by a great many therefore monarchy simple and unmixed was conceived to be the government of england and those popular assemblies were supposed to form only the ornament of the fabric without being in any degree essential to its being and existence the prerogative of the crown was represented by lawyers as something real and durable like those eternal essences of the schools which no time or force could alter the sanction of religion was by divines called in aid and the monarch of heaven was supposed to be interested in supporting the authority of his earthly vicegerent. and though it is pretended that these doctrines were more openly inculcated and more strenuously insisted on during the reign of the stuarts they were not then invented and were found by the court to be more necessary at that period by reason of the opposite doctrines which began to be promulgated by the puritanical party in consequence of these exalted ideas of kingly authority the prerogative besides the articles of jurisdiction founded on precedent was by many supposed to possess an inexhaustible fund of latent powers which might be exerted on any emergence in every government necessity when real supersedes all laws and levels all limitations but in the english government convenience alone was conceived to authorize any extraordinary act of regal power and to render it obligatory on the people hence the strict obedience required to proclamations during all periods of the english history and if james had incurred blame on account of his edicts it is only because he too frequently issued them at a time when they began to be less regarded not because he first assumed or extended to an unusual degree that exercise of authority of his maxims in a parallel case the following is a pretty remarkable instance queen elizabeth had appointed commissioners for the inspection of prisons and had bestowed on them full discretionary powers to adjust all differences between prisoners and their creditors to compound debts and to give liberty to such debtors as they found honest and insolvent from the uncertain undefined nature of the english constitution doubts sprang up in many that this commission was contrary to law and it was represented in that light to james he forbore therefore renewing the commission till the fifteenth of his reign when complaints rose so high with regard to the abuses practised in prisons that he thought himself obliged to overcome his scruples and to appoint new commissioners invested with the same discretionary powers which elizabeth had formerly conferred upon the whole we must conceive that monarchy on the accession of the house of stuart was possessed of a very extensive authority an authority in the judgment of all not exactly limited in the judgment of some not limitable but at the same time this authority was founded merely on the opinion of the people influenced by ancient precedent and example it was not supported either by money or by force of arms and for this reason we need not wonder that the princes of that line 
were so extremely jealous of their prerogative, being sensible that when these claims were ravished from them, they possessed no influence by which they could maintain their dignity or support the laws. By the changes which have since been introduced, the liberty and independence of individuals has been rendered much more full, entire, and secure, that of the public more uncertain and precarious. And it seems a necessary, though perhaps a melancholy truth, that in every government the magistrate must either possess a large revenue and a military force, or enjoy some discretionary powers, in order to execute the laws and support his own authority. We have had occasion to remark, in so many instances, the bigotry which prevailed in that age, that we can look for no toleration among the different sects. Two Arians, under the title of heretics, were punished by fire during this period, and no other reign, since the Reformation, had been free from the like barbarities. Stowe says that these Arians were offered their pardon at the stake, if they would merit it by a recantation. A madman who called himself the Holy Ghost was without any indulgence for his frenzy, condemned to the same punishment. Twenty pounds a month could by law be levied on every one who frequented not the established worship. This rigorous law, however, had one indulgent clause, that the fines exacted should not exceed two-thirds of the yearly income of the person. It had been usual for Elizabeth to allow those penalties to run on for several years and to levy them all at once to the utter ruin of such Catholics as had incurred her displeasure. James was more humane in this, as in every other respect. The Puritans formed a sect which secretly lurked in the church, but pretended not to any separate worship or discipline. An attempt of that kind would have been universally regarded as the most unpardonable enormity. And had the king been disposed to grant the Puritans a full toleration for a separate exercise of their religion, it is certain, from the spirit of the times, that this sect itself would have despised and hated him for it, and would have reproached him with lukewarmness and indifference to the cause of religion. They maintained that they themselves were the only pure church, that their principles and practices ought to be established by law, and that no other ought to be tolerated. It may be questioned, therefore, whether the administration at this time could with propriety deserve the appellation of persecutors with regard to the Puritans. Such of the clergy, indeed, as refused to comply with the legal ceremonies, were deprived of their livings, and sometimes in Elizabeth's reign were otherwise punished. And ought any man to accept an office or benefice in an establishment while he declines compliance with the fixed and known rules of that establishment? But Puritans were never punished for frequenting separate congregations, because there were none such in the kingdom and no Protestant ever assumed or pretended to the right of erecting them. The greatest well-wishers of the Puritanical sect would have condemned a practice which, in that age, was universally, by statesmen and ecclesiastics, philosophers, and zealots, regarded as subversive of civil society. Even so great a reasoner as Lord Bacon, 
thought that uniformity in religion was absolutely necessary to the support of government and that no toleration could with safety be given to sectaries nothing but the imputation of idolatry which was thrown on the catholic religion could justify in the eyes of the puritans themselves the schism made by the huguenots and other protestants who lived in popish countries in all former ages not wholly excepting even those of greece and rome religious sects and heresies and schisms had been esteemed dangerous if not pernicious to civil government and were regarded as the source of faction and private combination and opposition to the laws the magistrate therefore applied himself directly to the cure of this evil as of every other and very naturally attempted by penal statutes to suppress those separate communities and punish the obstinate innovators but it was found by fatal experience and after spilling an ocean of blood in those theological quarrels that the evil was of a peculiar nature and was both inflamed by violent remedies and diffused itself more rapidly throughout the whole society hence though late arose the paradoxical principle and salutary practice of toleration the liberty of the press was incompatible with such maxims and such principles of government as then prevailed and was therefore quite unknown in that age besides employing the two terrible courts of star chamber and high commission whose powers were unlimited queen elizabeth exerted her authority by restraints upon the press she passed a decree in her court of star chamber that is by her own will and pleasure forbidding any book to be printed in any place but in london oxford and cambridge and another in which she prohibited under severe penalties the publishing of any book or pamphlet against the form or meaning of any restraint or ordinance contained or to be contained in any statute or laws of this realm or in any injunction made or set forth by her majesty or her privy council or against the true sense or meaning of any letters patent commissions or prohibitions under the great seal of england james extended the same penalties to the importing of such books from abroad and to render these edicts more effectual he afterwards inhibited the printing of any book without a license from the archbishop of canterbury the archbishop of york the bishop of london or the vice-chancellor of one of the universities or some person appointed by them in tracing the coherence among the systems of modern theology we may observe that the doctrine of absolute decrees has ever been intimately connected with the enthusiastic spirit as that doctrine affords the highest subject of joy triumph and security to the supposed elect and exalts them by infinite degrees above the rest of mankind all the first reformers adopted these principles and the jansenists too a fanatical sect in france not to mention the mahometans in asia have ever embraced them as the lutheran establishments were subjected to episcopal jurisdiction their enthusiastic genius gradually decayed and men had leisure to perceive the absurdity of supposing god to punish by infinite torments what he himself from all eternity had unchangeably decreed the king though at this time his calvinistic education had riveted him in the doctrine of absolute decrees 
yet being a zealous partisan of episcopacy was insensibly engaged towards the end of his reign to favour the milder theology of arminius even in so great a doctor the genius of the religion prevailed over its speculative tenets and with him the whole clergy gradually dropped the more rigid principles of absolute reprobation and unconditional decrees some noise was at first made about these innovations but being drowned in the fury of factions and civil wars which ensued the scholastic arguments made an insignificant figure amidst those violent disputes about civil and ecclesiastical power with which the nation was agitated at the restoration the church though she still retained her old subscriptions and articles of faith was found to have totally changed her speculative doctrines and to have embraced tenets more suitable to the genius of her discipline and worship without it being possible to assign the precise period in which the alteration was produced it may be worth observing that james from his great desire to promote controversial divinity erected a college at chelsea for the entertainment of twenty persons who should be entirely employed in refuting the papists and puritans all the efforts of the great bacon could not procure an establishment for the cultivation of natural philosophy even to this day no society has been instituted for the polishing and fixing of our language the only encouragement which the sovereign in england has ever given to anything that has the appearance of science was this short-lived establishment of james an institution quite superfluous considering the unhappy propension which at that time so universally possessed the nation for polemical theology end of section sixty one appendix to the reign of james i part one recording by richard carpenter in seattle washington